Welcome to the School of Calisthenics podcast with your hosts, Tim and Jacko. This week on the podcast, we have none other than Tony Riddle, a.k.a. or as I like to call him, but he doesn't actually know I call him it, the Riddler. Most of you will know him as the natural lifestylist. We had a great conversation with Tony. So much enlightening information to share, loads of wisdom um, built through practice and experience and the development of a philosophy over a number of years. Um, not only is he is he helping people to get more um, rewilding in their life, that he talks about going back to basics and, and starting to, to become less of a zoo human and a more of a natural being, um, but he's also ran from Land's End to John O'Groats with no shoes on, which is also pretty awesome in itself and his feet survived it and i'm not gonna attempt to say that word i wouldn't be able to say it you say it again rewilding yeah i couldn't i wouldn't be able to pronounce that <laughs> um yeah and it's it, it's in line with um a lot of the sort of holistic guests we've had on recently so um those that have been enjoying that um are gonna be are in for a real treat this one um he's a lovely guy and uh, yeah we talk at, at quite a deep level as well and it's nice to um hear his thoughts on how we can all improve um, our life as as humans ultimately and uh, yeah you're gonna hopefully have a load of takeaways to, uh, to 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 digest just make sure you're doing it in the right posture i was gonna say get ready to throw away all your chairs squat on the floor for a and your number two and um you it will make sense yeah let's get into the podcast roll the jingle So it's with our great pleasure that we are welcoming Tony Riddle onto the podcast. Tony, thanks so much for taking out some time to uh, to come and chew the fat with us. You're welcome. Thanks for the invite. Amazing. Uh, absolute pleasure. Um, so just get us started, Tony. We've been having a browse around. We've, we've sort of um, actually came through. We have to, we have to give a, a, sh- a shout out to our um, our great friend, Fit Addict Gem off Instagram, who sort of suggested you as a podcast. And as we were just saying before, there's a number of different people who are familiar with your work. But just give us a bit of an explanation, description about what what is it all about, the natural lifestylist? Um, well, I wasn't always called the natural lifestylist. I was born as Tony Riddle, but... Um... <laughs> change my depot yeah um i went down a path of rewilding kind of rewilding movement and getting people to interact with nature getting them out in the outdoors um started through a movement modality really and then kind of moved into breath work and cold immersion and there's more experience outside they're looking at sleep and rest and people still weren't getting it under the title of rewilding so like, what is this you know we've heard about trophic cascades and reintroducing wolves back to the ecosystem and what effects that would have. But no one's really discussed rewilding a human. What, what, what does that mean? And, and suddenly I found um, a journalist from the, an editor from the Times, um, from, they, they basically approached me, from, no, from Style Magazine, and approached me and said that we want to do a piece, we've heard about you, we want to do a piece on the, um, six best coaches and I was like oh, okay great six best coaches great for my ego but what did that mean <laughs> you know so I went in we had a chat and it was all geared up around movement again and then suddenly I started bringing other modalities and I was discussing the home environment and removing chairs and ground living and then looking at sleep and trying to create biological darkness and what effects that would have on recovery and also metabolism and and then looking at nutrition and suddenly it just, her eyes just opened up and she just said, well, I, I realize now it's way beyond that. I, I, I'm 
was a bit ignorant to it and I just thought we were going to talk about movement but I see it's it's a whole experience it's a holistic approach and I think because of that we need to do a piece just for you and off the back of that came kind of the natural lifestyleist. I, I kind of got this point where I was realizing ah, okay it's, it's about lifestyle and we're reintroducing people to nature it's the natural lifestyleist. it just made it just made sense rather than being a lifestyleist, I was which conjures up all kinds of thoughts, right? This is about just reconnecting I'm people. Gok Wan when you say that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> reconnecting people back to nature, right? And it just made sense. Yeah, yeah. And then off the back of that, yeah, I got a t- double pager in Style Magazine. And then since then, it just kind of it just kept growing and growing because it was more relatable. But essentially, it just means, it's the same as rewilding for me. It just means to look into natural people, and places of the world to find ways of living that are more in sync with our human biology. And so that we can look to environments that we inhabit today and look for answers in maybe ancient cultures or in natural beings of today and reintroduce that just to create again, more of a holistic approach, but ultimately looking to tick that, that amazing box called well-being. That's what it meant for me. Um, I've always viewed natural beings as being amazing specimens, you know, and so there's something very different. And I've worked around many people for, multiple, for many, many years. And we had this thing around turning zoo humans into wild humans. But it was, it, we almost called a gym that. We were going to call it zoo human. But it has such negative connotations. Like, oh, you're a zoo human. Yeah. No one wants to be called that. And at the same time, they can't really associate with what it is to be a wild human, right? Because we've been led to believe they're bloody savages and, you know, <laughs> primitive. But actually, they're very sophisticated and... And we're only just really catching up. The science world is even just about catching up with Ayurvedic work. And, you know, and I think even with Wim's work, we can identify there's a lot of rewilding practices that are within that, right? So it just, that's kind of where my approach is. So there's a, there's a physical self I look at. And the closer I can make that, align those with what would be sync them with our human biology. Um, the the closer I can get to what true emotional well-being would be, and that's that's kind of the approach, really. And it's still evolving, of course. Like we, I hope we're all evolving, right? We should be. A, yeah. And the moment you stop, really, is a point of stagnation, and you can't really. Where are we going to go with stagnation? It's like with the movement, with the movement modality, you have to keep working at something to evolve. And it was, yeah, there might be a revolution that works within it, but ultimately, you will stagnate and we become more deconditioned and i firmly believe that the further away we get from that the growth potential by getting your physical social and spiritual needs met the the more suffering occurs you know um and suffering is simply a symptom for me of an environment and the behavior within the environment yeah yeah no, we, waffling uh, a bit, but we got no, no, like it. We, I like no, it. no, we love it. We've had um, the whole holistic approach. Um, I mean, you know, when you're on board with it, you sort of can't really see an argument against it because it's yeah. embracing all things. And we've had um, a sleep expert, Nick, uh, Nick Littlehales, on with oh, yeah, perspective. Um, Dr. Sally Bell is a functional medicine practitioner. Um, we had the guys from We Move. Um, so we've we've had lots of conversations um, at, on different areas um like the dr sally bell around the nutrition side was talking we talked mostly about nutrition side of things yeah and i'm gonna just i'm gonna go in like quite hard quite early in this one Tim, around just to ask like (laughs) 
So if we, we've, we've got all these different elements like physical, mental, spiritual, nutrition, um, sleep, all these different things and your, uh, your holistic approach is you're going to try and, I don't know if maximize is the right word, but you, you, you're going to try and look at all those things. When you're working with someone, um, are some of those more important than others, Is I guess, and, and or... How do you go about trying to identify with people and how might someone listening identify what areas they might need to work on most? It's a good question. It's full Um, on, isn't it? Well, it starts with a question, doesn't it? I think (laughs) Um, I hold an assessment generally, which is a simple hour and a half assessment. And within that, we sit and just, it's on a mat. So I get them to start with on the ground, and already within that, I'm, I'm assessing what's going on, just simple rest positions that might be occurring on the ground. And then I go through the physical kind of foundations, like what is, you know, what their movement might look like, what their sleep might look like, what their nutrition is. And you kind of get a good understanding of exactly where they are at their point in time, because we're all uniquely different. You know, mm. we talk about nutrition you know, we can have a nutritional expert on board, but I think personally, I think it's sheer arrogance for anyone to determine or tell you what it is exactly you need as an individual within a very complex system. Um, so really, I just, it's, for me, it's about establishing where they are in, on their current path, their journey, where they are today. And then through that, I then will look at just basically foundations of movement and get them back to moving on the ground. And then from the ground, I start to then work things up and then I'll ask them to run like a simple food. diary. I then get to look at a sleep diary. And then, and then we just start to incorporate For me. It starts with movement. It always will do. Um, because I think ultimately that, that, that will dictate how someone's feeling generally within themselves how they choose to move through a landscape will determine how they feel emotionally as well, you know, and it's a very easy access point to just simply upload that. For me, breath work as well has become a a huge, um, quite a game changer really, I think for emotional states anyway. Um, And a very quick upload into someone's daily routine or daily habit. So I think, yeah, it starts with the question of where they feel that they've, what they want to be able to achieve, what they're, why they're in front of me in the first place, because something will ultimately draw them to me. It's not like I'm putting myself out there as an expert in individual fields. It's, they understand yeah. it's a holistic approach to begin with. So within that, they usually have an understanding of what it is. Oh, I, I need to look at this. And then yeah. once I have them there, movement's always been a big thing for me. So I'm, I'm going to get the movement regardless. You know? yeah, Even yeah. if they come to me, oh, I just want to learn about sleep. Well, I've already assessed the way you've walked in the building. So I'm definitely going to get you moving right now. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, and then I'm kind of giving them a, a glare up and down of what footwear they're wearing, what clothes they may be wearing. You know? And then you, you get an understanding of where, how far they are on that domesticated path. You know? Yeah. Yeah. When when you mentioned um breath work, it's something that um we had well, we had Richie Norton, uh, the strength temple on um Yeah, I know Richie's I a know, friend a, of mine. A couple yeah, yeah. Of, yeah, I've just actually booked on to he's doing um uh, a workshop in Nottingham. Yeah. Um in December and I'm uh, excited to get into to to get onto that. And um yeah, he was he was big on move combining movement with the breath work. Um 
and often with that associate is almost like the sort of meditation side of things is is there is that a big thing for you as as, is it fit in part of that sort of mindfulness and meditation as part of what you yeah i think because again there's different ways of approaching breath work like there's up regulating techniques there's down regulating techniques there's stuff that you want to bring into a movement practice as well that like for my run for instance you know i went all the way into deep nasal breathing for the run and within that remained in an aerobic state had so much more oxygen on board my recovery was amazing my performance you know just everything just changed for me within that so that again there's different modalities that you can choose and then for even for looking at simple things like meal time you know so yeah i've been smashing it i'm had a crazy stressful day i've come off the tube been surrounded by complete chaos um i've had emails to answer i get to the door the kids are going nuts and then i sit down i'm going to eat something you know, so breath work is, can help the down regulation can go into parasympathetic. So that might be what we yeah. call rest and digest. So we associate it with rest, but we don't associate it with digestion. And you need to down regulate to get into a parasympathetic state to be able to digest because otherwise the enzymes are affected, stomach acid is affected. And so we could have the most amazing nutrition, right? I could be spending thousands on this nutritional expert yeah, I'm stressed out to the eyeballs and I don't understand how to downregulate. I'm not absorbing yeah, anything. True. So now I'm overfed and undernourished. And you're far better off being underfed and overnourished. And the way I see that is I can access that through breath. And so I choose nasal breathing for three minutes before eating just to downregulate. That's one piece of advice I give people. Um, and then before bedtime, the rest cycle of that is just, again, downregulating, just return to nasal breathing. A lot longer on the exhale and the longer the exhale the lower the heart rate and the blood pressure great cycles for sleep time it beats um counting sheep i much prefer to count my <laughs> blessings you know count your blessings before you go to sleep yeah. rather than sheep yeah. um and just work through breath with that and then through meditation again i think the quickest route into meditation which i found most of my clients especially the guys that come in you know and they're like yeah meditation whatever and, you know <laughs> and meditation now yeah <laughs> Um, it, it just became an easier sale going through breath. And especially yeah. when Wim came along, right? Wim just changed it to new. Just suddenly everyone, yeah. Oh, everyone wants to be, oh, yeah, I'm doing breath work rather than, <laughs> no, what, what breath work were you talking about? And then suddenly we have loads of breath gurus running around, you know? So it's just, mm, yeah. I think it, it, it's been a great tool for getting people, entering them into meditation. Yes. Um, that can be, you know, the, the studies showed like simple things like flick books, flick charts, and they show scenes of nature will upregulate and you get like into an alert state. And then they flip a page and it shows a nature scape and the nature scape will drop people into the same parasympathetic rest and digest. So I guess if you're out in nature, do you necessarily need to breathe as much to get into down-regulated state? No, but you do need to get outside and be connected to nature. Whereas if you're in an urban setting and which most of us are and that goes back to the zoo human wild human context yeah. is that mm. yeah we need to then be using breath work and modalities like that to down regulate to get back into the parasympathetic sit because the flip book that we're looking at is a fight and flight response it's triggering that so i think as many mm. tools as we can all be accessing there purely from from a training perspective it's just gonna just your growth it's a growth promoting state it promotes growth being in parasympathetic state 
You can relate like epigenetics to that. You can go down the path of Bruce Lipton, you know, and he had a Petri dish and cells in a Petri dish and, he, and they create a signal for the cells or they put toxins in the cell dish or they put nutrients in a cell dish and whatever's growth promoting that goes into the cell dish or nutrient density will grow. If you put things in that are toxic, cells go into a state of protection. And we're simply a Petri dish of say 47 trillion cells and they all behave the same, right? So if you've got toxic information going in all day, like toxic air, toxic TV, toxic food, you know, toxic movement, all of that, you know that you're gonna be going into a state of protection. So I think, how do you get yourself out of that? A very quick and powerful tool is breath work, right? So that's, that's how it works for me, really. That's why I look at it in various ways. It can be for digestion, it can be for sleep, it can be entering meditation, or it can simply be dealing with a toxic email, a toxic phone call, or trying to downregulate from watching the toxic news at 10. Yeah. <laughs> but Jacko thought he went in quite hard with a big question to start off with, but I've got one and I'm going to top trump in with it now because Ooh. I was browsing through your website today, Tony, <laughs> and I want to talk about bowel movements. So you've talked about digestion. You've got a great little video um, on, your, um, on your website and also about celebrating bowel movements. And then the second thing that I wanted to touch on was I can't remember the exact name of the product, which is recommended, but it's something like a potty stool. Yeah. Talk to us about that because this is something that you don't get on your normal podcast. My and wife, I think it's an important question because I read it and I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. My wife's got a book with, pitch, with like diagrams. Oh, no, no, it's not, this about, is better than that. You just, it? Hold tight. <laughs> oh, right, hit me. Yeah, we're talking about, so the squatty potty. Yeah, squatty potty. That's really, the one. Yeah, yeah, so it's basically, if I, like I'm on the ground now. We don't have chairs at home, so we ground live. So that means there's like a hundred different rest positions that have been observed in nature. Not one of them involves a chair, right? But there's a hundred different rest positions. And we all like to move and we like to move well. And we understand that posture is an, a huge part of movement, right? It's almost like a hierarchy within movement. And so I understand that all those ground rest positions that I observe people in nature, they're micro elements of the macro skill of standing up and being upright and then performing the task of being an upright being, which could be running, jumping, lifting, carrying, balancing, any of those disciplines. So I know that each one of those rest positions a feeding and nourishing that shape so what i need to keep doing is uploading those positions now the squat we understand is a huge foundation of standing if i observe all my kids they get to us they do all their ground their, their motor skill milestones sorry which is the same ground living positions ground resting positions they go through a multitude of those then they learn to squat and then they can stand up and then they keep going back to the squat and returning to it and off they go and especially if they haven't been compromised by car seats and strollers, like our kids have just ground lived, right? So it happens quite quickly and they're very strong in the shapes that they make now. Pooping, again, there's no toilet in nature, right? People don't go on the Thomas Crapper. It doesn't exist in nature, so they still squat. And what it does, it assists the, the bowel and it assists the colon and then it just assists the, the gravity, everything that was within it. And so that's our most natural position for a bowel movement. So things like colon cancer and hemorrhoids and things like that, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the diseases that can be associated by going to the toilet or sitting. Um, so that's, that's basically the squatty potty is for people that have a toilet um, that then it can bring them up so the squatty potty will get their feet up higher to the seated area of the toilet that then gives them the appropriate shape that what would be a squat to create the appropriate bowel movement 
you know. Yeah, that's what I told you it was a good question. Right, no, I'm telling you, <laughs> Miss, Miss, Mrs. Jacko had uh, th- th- there was this section in it when she when she was trying to tell me that I need to be more my torso needs to be more upright whilst I'm uh, whilst I'm on the toilet. Yes, yeah, so it's <laughs> and, like getting. Uh, yeah, Getting, and also, you think it's the same as like childbirth. Like we, my wife's just given birth again, and we talk about you know you follow the Edo squat challenge, and people understand that it's like thirty minutes of squats for thirty days. She was doing like uh, probably she was about six seven hours of squatting and kneeling, you know. Mm-hmm. And I went down this path of looking at childbirth being you know a physical, social, spiritual experience, and we're so disconnected from it. And, you know, King Louis brought in people should be lying down, women should be lying down on beds purely so he could see the birth. It was an observation point where he'd have a chair and he could see the bed and then see the birth. Um, and then people had to fight really hard to get things like squatting and kneeling into hospitals again. But if you then look to nature, women are just physically, socially and spiritually stronger, right? To be able to give birth naturally in a squat position. Most I see women that come into my studio that are pregnant or looking to give birth, they can't squat. So they're not, they don't necessarily even have the physical vessel that's primed for childbirth, right? You know? So it's like, yeah. or even pooping, you'd have to go down to a point where you'd have to rewild the squat just to rewild the poop. You know what I mean? <laughs> because you don't have the physicality at this stage to be able to get back into a squat position, which means simple things as we're understanding now, like, hemorrhoids or colon cancer can just be down to the inability to squat if you put it yeah you align it with yeah, that yeah. yeah yeah and then for so i think and then for things like bowel movements and digestion again that um which i have a digestion seg- segment on the website it's the same thing that breathing comes into that and just down regulating the system and making sure that you know that we understand that we're a cellular system but also we're a bacterial system they're also an energy system aligning those as well you know someone said you know people suggest that we're 10% human right so you know I think once you start to look at it that way we can soon see that actually what I put in and also what I take out is is a very important process you know yeah no and I think one of the things that I love about um these conversations that and guests like yourself that we have um on the podcast is just we might not necessarily um when people hear some of this stuff for the first time or maybe the second time or third time, it might not be that um, we understand and we're completely on board with all these different mechanisms and all these different areas that we're talking about. But just that the idea that there is more to, to us as humans and the, and the, the, the potential of like how we doing things like from breathing to eating and uh, from pooing or whatever it may yeah, be yeah. that there's, there might be a little bit more there to explore um, and just opening up that conversation rather than sort of uh, going through life in depending on what your society and culture is like around you, you just sort of get, it's very easy to just get, sw- you know, just just pulled along, do the same as what everyone else is doing. Um, Absolutely. And not really being in control, like not really being in control of what you're doing or making decisions and just opening up that. Uh, I just love the, the fact that we get to... Um, yeah, open up our minds to some of these different things. That's what, um, I, mean, I'm, that's what I love podcasts. I think podcasts are amazing for that, aren't they? Because yeah, suddenly 100%. it drags you out of, um, well, they're conversations, right? But they're conversations that drag you out of your, what would be a Petri dish again? Like yeah. what, what is your normalized environment that you exist in that's probably dictated by the first earliest years of your life? You carry on with the same behaviors and you're surrounded by the same family units and friends, whereas podcasts are like, wow, okay, 
there's this out there, there's this out there. You might want to explore with a little bit of it, but I always view it as you have to have that beginner's mind, right? You have to come in with an empty yeah. cup. You listen to something, you go, John, that makes sense. And I've always found that, you know, there's people throw around the term guru, right? And guru is like that term is um, you've managed to master the ever-changing. Lonely nature can be the guru, right? Because nature has mm. mastered the ever-changing. It's like literally changing, changing, changing. The leaves would be different in a second, <laughs> right? So um, I always think that the more you can align a conversation with nature, the more it makes sense, you know? It's like, yeah. oh, that makes perfect sense. Of course. Yeah, okay. Of course. That, that. Yeah, there aren't any seats in nature. Oh, of course. And that means that there's, oh, there's <laughs> all these different rest positions. Oh, of course. And they have the perfect posture. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, and you just... It just unravels that way. It always has done for me, really. Um, yeah. It's, but I think, yeah, again, podcasts are beautiful for that. I think you're doing an amazing job, guys, because I think there's much information you can get out there in the world now that it just it, it, it ignites people and suddenly it can get something they might be suddenly very absorbent to. And yeah. then they can go, oh, okay, where's the next thing I can go to for that? You know, even if it just yeah. plants one seed within one conversation. Yeah, we um, one of the, we we do want to ask you a little bit more about um, but the barefoot running that you and, and the big run that you've done. But just before we move on to that, um, if someone if people are listening and they may have heard literally listening from this or some of the other podcasts they may have heard from us or you or um, any of the other ones out there that sometimes or as you were talking earlier, I was thinking, okay, Tony is about helping people make change and make positive change and. The process to being able to make change, if I want to come to you and I'm going to want you to help me make some change, it isn't always just me having the information. I need to have the information of, of what it is that I need to change. But often sometimes the stumbling block is a little bit deeper rooted or someone just for instance, someone's listening now and they're, they're, they've heard a couple of things you've talked about going, okay, I'd like to maybe make some of those changes, but tomorrow comes and nothing happens because they haven't got sort of any uh, framework to work from about help it, uh, how do they actually help make that change happen. Have you got any any tips or any things you do with people rather than, you know, I can tell someone you should do this, or my wife says, Dave, you need to do this. doesn't mean it's going to happen, even if I know it's true. If, you know, there might be some things in the way. Is there any, if, if anyone's eager listening, they want to make change, but they find it difficult. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one because I, I I don't actually like telling people what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I've found over many years it's better to um, just be the change yourself, right, and just allow people to observe your behaviour in a way, and that they look and go, oh, okay, that makes sense. I like that. Yeah. So I think going by the way I I look at my kids and the way they learn because they haven't been domesticated, they haven't gone through a formal education, they're unschooled. So that's completely child-led learning. It's whenever they're in an absorbent moment about something, we just go, oh, here you go, and then they just suck it in. Okay. So I think if it's – the key is they could be out of the physical needs, right? We, we go into that right now. Out of the physical needs, there might be movement, play, sleep, rest, sunlight, digestion, food, sex, um, rest, water, out of all the physical stuff, right? If I looked at that right now and someone said, yeah, okay, I – it just it would just blow your mind how do you how can you expect to make that much change it's overwhelming yeah. so i think the first thing is to just look at what it is within your lifestyle that is flagging up for you and what it is that's flagging up for you and what you think you're listening to that you want to change like what is it you're observing or what is it you're hearing 
And what is it flagging you up in your own behavior? Because to drop this stuff over here, we have an emotional attachment to it a lot of the time because it's developed in the first earliest years, like my kids I'm talking about, right? So if you've been, um, if you have an emotional attachment to particular food groups or an emotional attachment to a food because it meant something else, you fell over, you got, you hurt your knee, instead of getting a hug, you got a Mars bar. I mean, you have a different attachment to it. It's no longer food, it's now a hug or love. So to drop that would raise even more of an emotional response. So what does that do? It triggers the same emotional need again. So I end up eating more of the same thing. So I think the key is to work with systems that help downregulate. And as to start with, I'd just go on the most simplest thing you could possibly do, which is noses are for breathing, mouths are for eating, and try and just go through a day of nasal breathing. Simple. That's like the quickest thing you can possibly do. Work on things that actually you just do all day, every day anyway. Breathing, we have to do it, right? You don't have a fucking choice. You have to breathe, right? <laughs> So that's probably the easiest thing to tackle, you know? And then once you have that, it enables you to remove the emotional response to change. Because change can trigger so many people. It's like, what? You know, you're, you're trying to break normalized patterns, so it triggers something. So I think, again... Simple things that are within your power to change is breathing, right? You just, that's the most simplest, simplest tool. And then once you have that, you then have the power, right? It's already, oh, I, I know I can now change a situation, right? Now, once I've learned that, I've I'm, I'm now ticked a box and that box is I've developed a new habit. Once you have a new habit, you know that you can change. So I think breath just helps you with what it is you need to change. But also learn just figure out what it is you're absorbent to. What is it that's triggering you? What is it that triggers you that you want to learn? You know, because there's so we're information rich, right? We are overloaded by information, but you, it's, you have to go and experience. So I think you could pick up a new modality of something every single minute, right? But it has to be something you really inspires you for you to be absorbent to it. And then once you have that, then it raises the game. Like I, I I failed miserably at education. I had the worst education on the planet. But there's stuff now that I suddenly I had to learn how to learn again. And then through that learning how to learn again, I suddenly figured out, ah, I learned all the things I am passionate about and absorbent about. And I can absorb them very quickly and that's how I can change. So for me it was just to highlight the things that yeah, that that give me a flutter. What is it I'm really excited about? So it might be if it's a movement practice and I look at it and I go, Well, actually I'm I don't want to do that. So I'm not, I'm not, there's no way I'm going to be drawn to that. So I wouldn't adopt it because it wouldn't last three minutes with me. You know, it has to be stuff that I'm passionate about. And who knows, I might go around the houses completely with a different movement modality and then end up over there later on. But if it doesn't do it for me in the beginning, I won't go near it, you know? Yeah. So I've got one question I'm going to come back to in a second, Tony, which is about parenting, because it's, um, it's a topic which you've mentioned a couple of times, and I think it'd be interesting for people to get your take on that. But whilst we're sort of referring to movement, um, we just wanted to get your thoughts and opinions around sort of bodyweight training specifically. I know that I've watched some of your movement um, practices and, and some of the different sort of um, environments that you move in and the ways that you move. One of the things that really excites us about calisthenics is getting back to how the body was designed to be used and going into that state of of actually thinking of the system as an integrated unit rather than isolated parts and and that's often where fitness has taken us into very sort of 
rigid, strict kind of positions, lots of sagittal play in front of back um, kind of positions. And um, and yeah, obviously the bodybuilding and the, and the growth of that took us down an isolation route. So trying to break away from that and getting back into using the body as a whole, just talk a bit around your philosophy around movement. And, and have you got any experience around sort of the, the hands? And I've seen you do some hand balancing work, but is that sort of where does hanging and hanging based work and ground based balancing work fit into your kind of process and, and philosophy? Well, I think it's a, they're rungs on the ladder, aren't they? So imagine if we were all natural beings again, right? So we wouldn't have these complete linear surfaces that we've all been conditioned to operate on for a start off, right? We'd have amazing abundance of um, different terrain to traverse, right? It would give us an experience. All our senses would be developed through it. It would open up so many other things for us. From an early age, we'd all understand how to ground it. We'd have incredible ranges of movement. We'd all climb, we'd balance, we'd lift. We'd do all these things, all natural disciplines. So that would mean that the very early um, physiology has learned to adapt to those techniques. But we haven't had that, right? That's kind of been removed. And we all went down a, a bodybuilding, cultured, athletic system. Or we had adult-led, sports-specific disciplines that are specialized like football, rugby, whatever they are. And they're specialized and they're repetitive, right? So for me, it's always been calisthenics and bodyweight training and things like hanging modalities and ground practices. They're a rewilding tool for me. So imagine we have natural movement over here and we have the zoo movement over here. And calisthenics and bodyweight work is about getting us over here. It's not over here. It's on the way to over here. Do you understand? Because simple hanging, you have to get, you have to rewild your grip, don't you, over a period yeah. of time. Then you're going to get straight arm strength. So we can rewild straight arm strength before we go into the zoo culture of just bent arm strength. Because we were all in such a hurry to get our t-shirt muscles that we lost sight of how we need to be able to move in the t-shirt to begin with. <laughs> um, so and then we end up with a culture that can't even change a light bulb. They don't even have that level of brachiation. Right? So, um, I well, Jacko has also found a solution to that by not wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you on that, man. I tried to complete my whole run without a t-shirt. Exactly. That's, yeah. And that's my new, my new reason for it, man. It's going to just be, well, I'm just, mate, just natural, mate. I'm rewilding. <laughs> you want to see me, you want to see me squatting, pooing without my shirt on. And Please yeah. never. Nice. Just remember to take your pants off. Um, yeah I just I I, I see it as I see them as tools I think it's an amazing practice and I think it's also an amazing discipline I think Um, but that's not to take it away from the bodybuilders out there because that also is an amazing discipline but it's a sport in its entirety alone that's what it is you know you have to have a huge amount of discipline to be able to do that and I think for the a lot of these things sorry yeah is the if people like if people want to do something like if if you want to do something then like just understand what you're going to get out of it i think is what we we'd often sort of say or talk about so if you if you want to move better like doing things in isolation is probably not going to give you that but if you want to pump up your biceps then getting a a dumbbell and and going hell for leather is probably going to be more effective for doing that but it's, it's almost like what's the point and what's the what's the why behind it um, yeah like if, again if, if but again if you have a profession where you have to get on stage and you do that but my advice would be yeah to basically do the groundwork first and then do put the bodybuilding culture on top of it so yeah. you, you or already have a basis for movement and therefore yeah. probably within that bodybuilding career you have longevity 
rather than yeah, you'll get more a, out of your training probably, muscle yeah. just running for yeah. a bus you know you want to be able yeah. to you know you still want to be able to move presumably right and i think that's yeah. kind of, sometimes with the fitness model can be a different conversation because that's that arena is at least now looking at movement practices and modalities on top of what would be more isolation. Yeah, yeah you mentioned about running there. Let's talk about that because you, you recently ran from Land's End to John O'Groats barefoot. Yeah. Um, I think barefoot running would be great to get your, your um, detailed and expert insight onto this. But as an observer and somebody who's sort of interested in, in that sort of subject area, it sort of rose up maybe... I don't know, let's say eight, 10 years ago, where lots of people started to talk about it. There was lots of shoe companies started to produce barefoot running shoes. And then all of a sudden it kind of went away. And it's actually quite difficult to buy barefoot or minimalist type footwear now because Nike don't do one and Adidas don't do one. You've got to go to some specialist companies. And I think a lot of people made a, a bit of a pig's ear out of trying to transition to something which was popular without really understanding it well. And, and then we were having conversations about stress fractures and, and all sorts of stuff. Absolutely. Um, how long have you been barefoot running and, and how did you, how did you sort of transition into it if you needed to in, in the first day? And what's your sort of like thoughts about other people joining um, that sort of um, joining you in that sort of practice of, of going back to more minimalist footwear and even dare I say it, transition to running around yeah. on without shoes on at all. What do, yeah. and what do your feet look like now after that? On my feet, yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, and they're in a good, they're in good shape now. They went, but were know, they a bit I, smashed after that or not? Um, you're just not. It's not the smash. It's like they de- you develop pads like proper pads. Like so, I had yeah. like these thick pads underneath my feet not like hard calluses you know like calluses you get like jelly calluses yeah. they, they become mm. like the whole sole of your foot becomes like that so you become like a running animal basically so i have my own nike air maxes going on you know <laughs> um which is adaptation which is incredible how we have that ability to adapt that way um going back into the injury rates look we we i started off in a personal training background went from personal training to more rehab opened up a pilates studio and then the people that used to come into the Pilates studio were all looking to unravel the ill effects of a sedentary culture. That was basically it in a nutshell. But they don't know that. They're just coming in because I've got, I've got this hip thing going on. I've got lower back, mechanical low back pain. I have this going on. All posture. Pilates is renowned for posture work, postural work, right? And then, and then their fit, foot mechanics would then affect how the ankle behaves, the knee behaves, the hip behaves. It's like this two-pronged attack. We get compromised by footwear that's narrow in the toe box, and we get compromised by a sedentary lifestyle. Um, so what I then found was, well, what's the point now in a Pilates practice if all I'm doing is dealing with the symptoms of an environment? They have every power to change themselves. So it then went down the path of, right, let's just tackle the cause. So then footwear came up in the conversation, posture came up in the conversation. And, a, and the guy that we were working with was called Nicholas Romanoff, or he's called Nicholas Romanoff with the pose method. And he discovered a specific posture that everyone has to go to when they run. And then we could align that posture with the best runners in the world, like the, like the tribe running cultures of the world have an amazing posture, right? And they have a specific posture they go to when they run. What tends to happen when you sit for periods of time like that sedentary culture plus rubberized footwear with a narrow toe box, it alters our perception of what running form and shape should be, which means we then alter the running mechanics, which means physiology and anatomy is slave to the biomechanical model, which means the physiology and the, and the, um, the anatomy and physiology can't cope with the shape that we're trying to make within running. 
And the modern shape of running isn't running, it's called jogging. And it's a hybrid movement that exists somewhere between walking and running. It's like a pendulum action rather than a pulling action, which is more like a cycle action. So um, what we discovered through that is we were having, um, it was a boom for us. We were healing people that were coming in with knee injuries. The American College of Sports Medicine had this stat, which is like 70 to, I think it's 80% of runners now that are um, giving up through injury. So we, first of all, we were like, well, how's that possible since we're a sapien, which is a running species? Our whole anatomy and physiology is designed for running, right? It's what shapes sapiens. So how is it that so many are giving up through injury? What is it that's changed? And then you started to look at, well, there's a zoo example of jogging and there's a wild version of running. And the wild state of running is a specific posture. It has a cadence, but also they don't wear compromising footwear. So then we started to look at, right, if we change the shape, we were taking away the knee injuries and the lower back injuries. And we were just healing people within sessions, right? We, I had a guy from, he was a track and field co a running coach from a company called Champions Everywhere. He's a Danish guy working in, living in Ireland and training fell runners. And he was putting them through Arthur Lydiard's model. Arthur Lydiard was a track and field coach in the 50s, 60s, absolutely cleaning up, turning track athletes into Olympians. And he had a protocol where it was lots of volume, 100 miles a week. But what was different was that their running posture and their environment in the 50s and 60s is different to today, right? So even then, we have this generational amnesia of how running would have been, right? Because we're so cultured into thinking that we all should be running with cushion behind our heel, right? But back then, they weren't. People were making running shoes for them, right? Their track shoes were very different to what they are today. Arthur Lydiard was making shoes for his athletes. So what we found is that that guy with 22 injuries that was trying to put through 100 miles a week through his athletes, they were all breaking down. So all I did with him just got him back to ground living, got him back to understanding how to rewild his feet and move his feet, ultimately feed the right posture that was aligned with wild beings and running. And then he removed his injuries, right, and went on. People that he was coaching then, he just chose the same model. Vivo Barefoot have a very similar model. Pose method is the same model. There's a, there's a postural system within running. And then what we found is that people read Born to Run by Chris McDougall. And instead of understanding that there's a wild shape to running, they just thought they could take their shoes off and go from a jogging posture, remove their shoes, and expect to have the outcome of the Tabahumada, right? Who have been a running spiritual, social, physical being all their lives, right? Who hone technique and believe that's what running is always about, is improving the technique to become more efficient, right? So what we found then is instead of knee injuries through heel striking, because the shape hadn't changed, all people did is change the loading position of their foot. Now, the further forward your foot goes of your, um, what would be your head, your hip, and your pelvis, imagine a straight line, you're upright now. The further forward your head goes, the further forward your foot has to go, otherwise you'd fall over. So instead of heel striking because the foot's ahead of them, which the rubber was allowing, they now start landing on the outside of their foot, right? And loading the outside of their foot. And the fourth and fifth metatarsal heads, as in the little toe, yeah. is... The big toe is four times denser and thicker than the little toe. So which one would you suggest is for real load and leverage and pivoting? Well, it's the big toe, but people are running around on the outsides of their feet, getting stress fractures in the fourth and fifth met heads. Their Achilles was blowing up because they were basically shoving the tendon actions, can't understand their role, and they all blew their calves up. So suddenly we then had this conversation of 10 years ago, we had the running, the barefoot running boom, right? Then it dampened down because we were now seeing new injuries. So we went from knee injuries to lower extremity injuries. 
But the result was all the same. You have to return people back to the natural state of running to get the natural outcome, which makes you more efficient and removes the risk of injury. But people are sometimes not prepared to listen, you see, because they, they, they want to carry on doing the length or the mileage that they've been doing all along. And they're not prepared to strip it back. And when you learn, which would be relearning how to run is like learning a new practice again. So it does mean stripping it back. Once you've got it, guess what? You have longevity again. And guess what? You can, I've proved you can go and run 900 miles in 30 days barefoot. You know? Yeah, no, you're, yeah. It doesn't you're mean living, it didn't come without any challenges, you know? And there was yeah. stuff in there that... Um, I, the variables that I discussed with people going into that run, they were like, oh, how do you, know, how's it feel? do you think you're going to do it? And I couldn't ever say, well, no, it's going to be really impossible because you know, I have to be able to go in with a positive mental attitude <laughs> to be able to do the run. But there was stuff in there that I even said, there's variables that are so out of our control that we can't, we can't, we can't suggest what's going to happen 100% of the time, right? And I got hit yeah. with that on the run. There were a few occasions where stuff just didn't, it didn't, just didn't work right for me, you know? And I had to take time out. But then also within that, the recovery was really quick for me. You know, the ability to get up and do 30 miles the next day, 30 miles the next day, 30 miles the next day. But I had stuff in my bag like breath work, plant-based diet, breath work, squatting, ground living, rest positions that would keep nourishing the posture and keep all my locomotive joints aligned with the behavior that I needed each day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the things that um, comes up time and time again is we modern, we talk about modern day humans, we want the quick fix. Like we get it with, Tim's big on it, like when someone comes to a workshop and they're like, um, they want to know, it's like, Tim, why can't, what's, what's the thing I'm not doing to, from a frog to handstand? And when he says, you're just not strong enough and you've just not spent enough time doing it, like it's, it's not like some sort of quick thing that's going to ignite it. And I always say to people, also... We, we want that quick thing, or we think we do, but if everything comes dead easy, you don't get the same level of satisfaction out of it as or when you've actually worked, exactly, when you've worked through a process. Um, and I guess that's just an encouragement for us all, as much for, for myself as much as everyone, that, that like spend, if you are going to do something and, and want something that's worthwhile, it is going to take some time, but that's the whole, that's almost the whole point rather than looking for the, for the quick fix. If someone was wanting to, uh, to look at, um, exploring a little bit of barefoot running, have you got some results rather than sort of necessarily talking about it now? Is there some resources you've got on your, on your site? We can send people points yeah, or videos I, on. I developed a series of tutorials. So, um, first of all, I have like a squat tutorial on there, which is, which goes through so many different, um, again, we've got like rewilding feet in there. So it looks at trying to get the feet back in the shape being the foundation of the squat. And yeah. then the ankle behaviors, knee, hips, and then different ground positions you need to get into, which are the, imagine the squats are macro skill. So what are the micro skills of the squat? So a bit like the conversation, like people, yeah, they, don't, they want the magic bullet, magic result. But then it's also understanding what are the micro elements of that result. So the squat tutorial is about that for me. And then at the end of it, then there's the discussion around 30 minutes of squat 30 days um you could just go and do 30 minutes of squats for 30 days but you're probably going to build on a really shitty foundation so i, I look at the foundation of the squat first and then i have a running tutorial which is a 10-step program where you get to analyze where you are now and camera works great because the camera never lies and it kind of drags it out of you where you can be unconsciously incompetent 
until someone shows you, uh, this is what actually you're doing. So there's an, an analysis tool on there and then 10 steps to rewilding that running style. And then you get to re-record it. So that's, that's an amazing tool. Um, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll give you guys um, a 50% discount code for your listeners as well, if that works. Oh, awesome. Yeah, um, so yeah, that's, yeah. there's a rewilding your feet yeah. program, a running program, and a squat program. Um, and then there's other stuff, you know, if people want to come and see me, I do like assessments and we do one day immersions and stuff like that. So that's, yeah. Yeah, that's another way. You just have a look at the website. You can go over there. I'll do the sale. That's tonyriddle.com if you want to have a look at that. Yeah, t- yeah, okay. So yeah, TonyRiddle.com. We'll put the um we'll put some details in the show notes. We could even Brilliant. um on the page on uh, if they're if they're YouTube videos, we could even embed them into the, the podcast page. It's a, it's a Vimeo probably. thing, so it's on Vimeo oh, okay. work for that. So you just put in yeah, the Vimeo yeah, link we've... and then discount code yep. that'd be that'd be super. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll put all that in so people can see it straight away. And I would encourage people to go over to um to to the uh, to your website as well. It's uh, it's, it's 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 a nice web it's a nice website in itself but also some some great information on there well you learn how um, to poop well. right it's got to be good <laughs> exactly <laughs> i want to see that tutorial yeah whilst we know you're probably really enjoying the podcast there's something else that we think you will also really enjoy and that is the virtual classroom if you're a beginner we have got an eight week free beginners program designed to help you start your calisthenics journey where you're going to learn how to move better get superhuman strong and have a lot of fun along the way if you're ready to take your training to the next level and learn some of the iconic calisthenics movements like a frog to handstand or a muscle up then inside the virtual classroom you are going to find all the training programs and educational information that you need but rather than keeping you from the podcast for any longer than necessary, head over to schoolofcalisthenics.com where you're going to find a bodyweight training resource which is different to anything else available anywhere. Tim, I think they're ready to get back to the podcast. So now I'm just going to ask you one last question because it's a, it's a really interesting one. Um, I've got a little boy, he's just over two and a half years old, but I'm going to throw my wife into the mix as well, who's South African and grew up going to school barefoot every single day until she hit high school. They would play rugby barefoot, they did everything barefoot, and now she puts me to shame and walking over difficult services. And I'm, I'm a barefoot kind of person. Give me, the, give me some hot weather and I'll take my shoes off for the whole summer if I can. Um, but it strikes me that what she did from a young age and how she was brought up in those early years have really affected how she is now and I I got the impression from the way that you're raising your kids that you're putting in these sort of um, lifestyle habits and teaching them a lot about this sort of stuff from a very early age which I think is amazing I've just been really interested in in sort of any key takeaways you've got from a parenting perspective because it sounds like you're doing things in in some ways quite different to what the norm would uh, would sort of prescribe yeah I think it's it's what's normalized so Firstly, what is socially normal to us isn't socially normal in every culture. So again, when you start to look at natural beings of the world, you see that their kids are pretty robust and strong, right? So we went, with Tallulah, we went no nappies, right? And people were like, what? What do you mean no nappies? And we were like, well, how do people do it in nature? And we also have more respect and confidence in our pets, right? We, pot- we basically pretty much potty train a pet immediately, but our kids, we put them in nappies and they... We teach them how to shit in a nappy and then we have to teach them how not to do it. So it's like, <laughs> why not remove the four years of teaching them to go in this thing? So really it was like that we are innately wild, innately connected and innately empowered beings, right? divine beings at birth. So for me, it's about preserving, you know? So in terms of being wild and connected with my physicality, 
the more and more I get offer things that are going to make them more comfortable or decondition that, the more I remove those abilities. And then guess what? We have to go and rewild, reconnect, and wear empowered T-shirts, right, and become re-empowered. But that's all innate in us. So for me, it was like just let your kids unravel, you know. Don't wrap them up, you know. They have amazing ability, thermogenesis. We can all do it. Again, they can be barefoot. Just get them to experience and get them out in nature. And I think just, yeah, you don't have to wrap them up in bubble wrap. They're incredibly strong beings. But what you can do is you can compromise that very early. And I think ultimately it has to be you. So you have to be the change. It goes back to earlier, like the coaching conversation, is you can't tell your kids. You can't tell them one thing and behave another way because you're a hypocrite. And they, 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 they soon see who's being authentic or not. They can figure that out very quickly, far quicker than we can, because again, they're innately connected beings, right? We've lost that. We have to learn how to reconnect. They work purely on an emotional level and they know when it's true or false or whether it's authentic or inauthentic, right? So you have to be the change. So if you don't want your kids on their computer screens or staring at phones, you can't be doing the same thing, right? You have to remove that. If you want them to take up meditation, you have to meditate with them. If you want them to go out for nature walks, you have to go, do you know what I mean? If you don't want them to eat sugar and sweets and, you know, and processed food, well, they don't go food shopping. Just don't buy it for them and don't eat it yourself. You know, it's just simple tools and it's really common sense, isn't it? Um, yeah. I think the, the difference is that we, 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 fortunately, we went down a path where we decided not to send our kids to school. So that was a big thing for us that we wanted to unschool them not even follow a curriculum, but unschool them so that we can again, just see what their innate abilities are and understanding through that process that we're all uniquely different, you know? So being forced at the same education or the same movement or something, you know, what you want to do is just observe it, observe your kids to begin with and see what it is ignites them and then just enable that. And secondly, just create environments that enable them to thrive, right? So they, we all have, everything we need inside of us when we're born. It's just the petri dish that we're cultured into isn't necessarily giving us the right result. So something's changing or something's shifted within the social environment. So if you want to keep connected, wild, empowered beings, you have to look at your own social environment. Firstly, go and do the work yourself, I think is the most important one, right? Is to yeah, do, do a bit more deep inner work and just look at your first templates and remove the stuff that you actually don't want your kids to inherit, you know? And I think it's just take a, it's really, we need to look at ourselves before we think about what we teach our kids because our kids learn through observation. There's a guy called Peter Gray. He wrote a fantastic book um, called Free to Learn. And he asked, asked 10 leading anthropologists what childhood looked like in nature. And they observed kids from infancy through to teens, like 16. And kids learn everything they need to learn um, from, for, for their adult life through play without any adult interventions. They don't have sport and they don't have school led by teachers and adults. And they're not told by adults how to play. They just all play. And they learn everything they need to learn within that environment to take them into adulthood, which would also suggest that adulthood is still seen as a state of play because that's what they've learned in that. They learn about the tracking the animals, the weight of the animals. They learn about how to track water, how to forage. They learn about all the plants in the plant kingdom. You know, so 
that's that's the level that's how disconnected we are from that system because we are too quick to tell kids what they should be doing and we don't trust those innate abilities within them but we also have set environments up that aren't necessarily safe as what it would be in nature you know so it's finding a balance within that but just ultimately having trust that kids have an amazing ability to adapt and learn and they do that through the observation. It's through the observations. They're observing everything we do. And they, I think Bruce Lipton's work is about the first seven years of life. So in those first seven years, um, you, you record everything you need within that environment from our family, our friends, and our tribe. And they will become the tapes that we play out for the rest of our lives. So one could suggest that those first seven years are probably the most important years of our life. And so those seven-year-olds are observing us. We're their adult species. And so we all need to have a little bit more care and attention to our own behaviors and languages that we're using because that's being sucked in. So their future is being sucked in by our past, basically. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Yeah, I think that's great. And the thing that's sort of ringing through for me as you've spoken through the whole conversation is just around, we've got to be really intentional about getting off the hamster wheel and then starting to reflect and question everything. And the thing that the particular parenting thing is when you're working hard, you're on that hamster wheel all day, you're pushing business, you've got social pressures, everything that's going on, and then to come home and then find time to not follow the path of least resistance with Jack, my little boy, to just go, oh, it's just easy because I'm tired. Mm. To then come home and then continue to have the energy to invest. It's taking a look at everything, questioning it. Like you said before, I think the takeaway for people is which bits of those of your life is starting to to sort of stand out. And if you're if it's frustration that your kids are always on after their phones, like take a look at yourself and question where they're getting that from. And through it's to a, a lot of the other stuff you've, yeah. you've said, it's, it's really, really they, insightful. Because they've learned that through observation again. So think of that, that, um, ob- the, the study of the 10 anthropologists, the kids have learned everything they need within the environment through observation. So we're their tribe. So they're learning everything from us, you know? So I don't want them on their phone. Okay. To get off your phone. Another thing, another great tool for parents who are working and bringing breath work in again, that you've come, you've been, you've been at work all day, you probably had God knows what going on, you might have had a stressful conversation, you might be fearful about something, pressure from something, then you've got on the tube and you're surrounded by other beings that have got exactly the same experience going on, that energy is just completely insane. And then you arrive at the door, right? Do you want to walk in the door with all that stuff? No. So again, just... Take a moment, a nasal breath. Just go back to breath before you walk in the house and just change your energy before you get in because it will have a massive shift. But it won't just have a shift in their behavior, but it will have a shift in your own behavior and your reaction to them because your kids are literally just showing you what's going. They're just highlighting everything within you. It's the best reflection you can have as a child, right? They will flag up so much stuff within your personality that you need to change. And if you're really open to learning and listening to it, then they're probably your best coach ever, you know, will be a child. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I haven't got any kids, but I love that. So that's a great way. There's an incentive. To, uh, to look at it. Yeah. This is, yeah. Yeah. Good coach. Yeah. yeah. No, Tony, thank you so much for, uh, for, yeah, for, for taking the time to come onto the podcast and share, uh, your, your thoughts, your philosophies and your, uh, ultimately your wisdom, wisdom on, um, on life. Um, and uh, yeah, no, we're massively grateful and I'm looking forward to hearing the feedback we get from um, 
from all from all the listeners if uh, if they want to find you and uh, if they've got any questions or anything for you they can connect with you on instagram is that yeah is, is that a good place to find you on um instagram at the natural lifestylist or they can come through the website um tonyriddle.com yeah and just Perfect. fire over whatever whatever questions you have i might not yeah. be able to get back to it immediately because you know Sometimes doesn't work out that way. Oh, yeah, no, no I mean, of course. Uh, you've, you, yeah. you've put your phone down because the kids are... The kids exactly. Are, <laughs> well, I call it kiddie mode. School. You know, know flight mode? Just get it over to <laughs> yeah, kids. Yeah, flight mode. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for the invite, well, guys. So, it's been amazing. Um, yeah. Real yeah, pleasure. Fantastic. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. I'm going to go out in nature. That's going to be my... <laughs> there you go. Get outside. Big thing. Get outside, yeah. I didn't realise you were... Um, you said about your um, education was... was you sort of said you had a poor education. I didn't realise you went to Dane Court Comprehensive as well. <laughs> no. Well, if it, no, my school got closed down. It was that bad. They basically uh, no longer exists. Yeah. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Tony, just thanks again. And we've got nothing else to say apart from until next time. Class dismissed. So thank you so much again for listening. We don't take it lightly that you uh, give up probably an hour of your time to listen to these podcasts, so we really do appreciate that. We hope you got a lot of value out of it, guys, and we would, if you did, we would love you to do a couple of things for us. One of them is tell other people and share it if you thought that we were adding some value, and also, if you want to, pop over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and give us a five-star review. We like five stars. Four stars not as good. Keep it five are the best. Five of your best stars, please. <laughs> and if you would like to find out more about the School of Calisthenics and see the best of everything that we have got, head over to our virtual classroom. You can access it from the website at schoolofcalisthenics.com. And that is where we have got literally, possibly, the best calisthenics resource available anywhere in the world. It's definitely the best one we've done. And on that note, until next week, class dismissed. <laughs>